This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash US slash get QR code. And so did you, uh, I saw on some of your stuff, you're a big metal fan, and I got into metal first. That's what I loved. Um, I was a metal director at my college radio station. Like, was that one of the first genres that you got into? No, uh, I didn't. I I, I, I liked some metal when I was in high school. Uh, I, just, I don't think I really got into it until I was uh, maybe a sophomore in college when I um started DJing at the college radio station in Athens, WSB. W- uh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, I, got, I got kind of reintroduced to metal through ISIS, as I think a lot of people did in the early 2000s. And then I just kind of spiraled from there. Um, actually, um, my, my, I probably owe my whole entire musical realm of existence for better or for worse to 90s christian rock <laughs> now which now um being being uh what f- going to school in the south and you are from the atlanta area i'm very familiar with that what was this like tooth and nail or solid state stuff or even you know it even was, uh less than that it, yeah i was i was very much a, a tooth and nail kid um and uh, in kind of like all the very, very tiny labels that were part of like the Christian punk and hardcore scene in the late 90s. Um, if, you, if you were to name a label or a band, I probably saw them or had like their CD or their 7-inch or whatever. Were um, you a fan of Spitfire? Yeah, they, they're one of the weirder ones uh, at the time. They're like... They, they kind of picked up on the Dillinger escape plan kind of like insanity before a lot of those metalcore bands did. Um, they're, 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 they're up 
fun topping Taylor escape plan before everybody else. <laughs> yeah, they uh, they would. Um, I don't know if you ever went to the MacRock um, convention, which was in uh, Harrisonburg, um, but they always played, and it was always with Dillinger. Um, one of their their drummer uh, dated a girl that I went to school with, and so he would always come and visit, and he would play me his songs or records, and we would goof off and stuff. And it was uh, I that 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 seems very interesting because I think people from you know if it's the West Coast or the North, like you kind of get scoffed at, but a lot of times, and I don't know if this was your situation, but I know a lot of friends that I had, like, that's all they could listen to. You know, their parents were like, you only can listen to Christian bands. I don't think my parents ever told me that I could only listen to Christian bands, but they certainly monitored, um, like, the stuff that I was listening to and watching when I was growing up. And so, um, because of that, I mean, I would still listen to, like, you know, the, the mainstream rock station and like worship at the feet of, you know, Billy Corgan and stuff like that when I was, you know, a teenager. But the the stuff that I could actually get away with, you know, actually buying um in you know in in, in record stores were like stuff that basically came out on Tooth and Nail at the time because, you know, they had this incredible distribution that got them into every store. It didn't wasn't just like the Christian stores or whatever. So um I really relied on uh, I relied on a what I could find in my and this is where it gets especially embarrassing uh, the Christian bookstore. I relied on what was there, um, and I relied uh, and you know not to get all nostalgic or whatever, but I relied on zines uh, at the time. Um, on because what? On zines like paper Xerox. Yeah. Like fanzines and stuff. This uh, is the nostalgic podcast, so do not worry. I just, I realize that. Yeah. <laughs> I need to it. <laughs> but there are, there are some really great, like, you know, Xerox scenes back when I was in high school that, uh, you know, I, I'd pay my $2 and, you know, self-addressed stamped envelope for. And that's how I would um, read about these bands, you know, yeah, of course, there wasn't YouTube or anything at the time, so I just had to trust that what is people were writing was actually true. And, you know, sometimes it's not great, but uh, most of the time you just be turned on to this whole other world without, like, any preconceived notion of what it was supposed to be. And... Well, that's so interesting about it. I mean, you you had to do the work, and you had this leap of faith that you would not necessarily use Literally. the Christian term, but you would, you would have a leap of faith of your, okay, I'm this, I read one review. He said, it's awesome. I'm going to send $12 in an envelope and hope to God that in a month, the record's going to come and right. you got it. And you listened to it over and over and over again. Um, and you either got it, you were stoked on it and you read the liner notes and found out about more. There was such this, you know, discovery. And I think definitely with the, with the Christian, you know, scene that was even more like a tighter community with Cornerstone Fest. Um, all those things were happening at that same time. Um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, Cornerstone alum, 1997. Um, uh, and that's where, I mean, I, I think I really got into kind of like the Christian punk and hardcore stuff when I was about 13, maybe 12. And um, I went to Cornerstone when I was 14. I was a freshman in high school. 
and uh, my cousins who are much, much older than me, they agreed to like meet me in Chicago if I got a flight. Um, and then we drove through the cornfield, Illinois, and we went to Cornerstone and camped out. And I just got turned on to this whole weird world of like Christian festival culture, which I don't think really exists anymore. Um, that, uh, I, I've been out of that scene for, oh gosh, you know, a decade and a half at this point, but um, it, it was definitely a different world uh, from some of the festivals that I go to now, especially. You um, think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get to see this Hope's coming, Fall? This coming, this, coming from a, this coming from a guy who's going to Maryland Death Fest this weekend. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever see Hope's Fall in any of those? Oh, yeah, they were... Um, they they were based. I mean, they were from Charlotte, North Carolina, but they might as well have been an Atlanta band because they played uh, so often in the like um, youth halls in uh, in like the Atlanta suburbs. So I saw them, you know, before even Frailty of Words came out. Um, like, gosh, how long ago was that? Well, was actually, probably. I booked their first show. Oh, really? Yeah, they played Elon. They played at a parents' weekend um, outdoor venue. The tape that they released, that photo is from that show. Um, they're like <laughs> demo tape, and it was hilarious. Like parents are coming to like visit or like show off the campus, and there's Doug and every like them like screaming their heads off. It was amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, it was like you know that was my first sort of intro to that scene, and they kind of got me into what was happening and. At that point, I really, I mean, yes, I knew it was Christian and the words weren't, there wasn't swearing and they, you know, they had, maybe there was some preaching or talking, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like the shows were always just Christian kids either. It was just, it was like, they're, they have a sick breakdown, um, on Shines Through, I'm going to check them out. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the funny thing was, was that, uh, years later, um, I had a, I had a friend at WOG, and uh, we realized that um, we, we both kind of grew up in the same county, and uh, we started talking about like high school and whatever. And she said, and she uh, turned out to go to like a lot of the same shows that I went to, and I was that surprised because she's Muslim. And I was like, really? It was like, why did you go to these shows? You're Muslim. And uh, she said, well. My parents didn't want to send me to like you know the club in downtown Atlanta because they didn't know what was going to happen. So they felt safe, they felt safe sending me to a Christian rock show. <laughs> that is funny. But it was true. Like it, that made a whole lot of sense to me. I was like, yeah, they were like very safe spaces, and that's you know, like I don't know where that came from. Whether it's just out of you know uh, out of you know. Christian doctrine, or whether it actually came from DIY DIY practices, um, but I mean that's what DIY does now. They they look for safe spaces uh, in order to like be an accessible space to everybody, and not just people who can drink. So uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of bullshit about the that scene. Uh, I like now that I think back on it, but like, the core tenets of it are. Like are really like amazingly DIY and very positive. Yeah. How did you? Um. When did you? You know, we've obviously talked a lot about you know emo, and that's kind of how we met. How did you 
how'd you get into it? What was sort of the, you know, was it, was it in college or was it after, or when did you sort of start to dive in? I think, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. I think it ties back to, again, uh, a tooth and nail band, um, of Roadside Monument. I was um, about to say, God, I was going to guess. I do yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so good. Their, their <laughs> album, uh, Eight Hours Away from Being a Man, came out in 97. And uh, I think I heard it like maybe a year after it came out. And I was kind of blown away by it. It was unlike anything that I'd heard. It was like, you know, very much like thinking back on it, very much in that quiet, loud, quiet kind of thing that was going on at the time. But they seem to have a, a better grasp on it than most of the bands that you kind of forget about, you know, from that time. And, you know, they're a little bit more chaotic as well, which I liked because, I don't know, I was a teenager. Um, and uh, I think at that point, you know, I, we have like a, you know, a 50 52k modem dial-up kind of like action going on in our home, and uh, there was a message board that I used to frequent, and I wrote, I just started listening to this band called Roadside Monument. It's like, what is this? And then somebody says, it's emo. I'm like, what the hell is emo? <laughs> um, and so I said, well, what else should I, should I listen to? You know, this is like I was. Uh, I don't know, might have been like 15 or something at the time. And they, they rattle off this list of bands that sound nothing like Roseette Monument and, and, you know, when I think about it. But I ended up buying all those CDs. So they listed uh, Minerals Power of Failing and Sunny Day Real Estate's Diary and Jimmy World Static Prevails and, you know, Get Up Kids 4-Minute Bottle. So I bought all of those. And I remember thinking, this doesn't sound like Rose and Miami at all. What the hell is Evo? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I ended up loving all of them except uh, for Get Up Kids. But I still, I still don't like Get Up Kids. <laughs> you don't like them as a band at all? No, no. I tried. I really did, and I just never got into them. Um, but it, it's it's uh, it's funny that I like their side projects better. Um, did you like but, did you like New Amsterdam's? I liked New Amsterdam's, but I, I think I liked Reggie and the Full Effect the best. <laughs> Reggie's great. Reggie's Just because great. Because it's so silly and over the top. Yeah. Oh, that is so interesting. I mean, it's, it's it's such a similar story with someone like someone tells you like, "What is this? I really like it," and then they sort of tell you this label, and then you kind of go on this little journey, and you sort of find your niche. If it's the Get Up Kid side, or if it's Sunny Day, or Mineral, or you know maybe this like poppy stuff, it kind of you you start going on that trail. Um, yeah. And what what did you? What did you like about it? What what really connected you with it as you were listening to all these bands? I mean, similar story to I think most people who got into emo when they're in high school. You know, I hated high school. Um, I was you know, uh, you know, theater kid with you know, uh, you know, kind of always felt like the odd man out in high school and whatnot. And you know, I kind of. I felt a kinship with this music that felt the same, uh, at least musically to me. And um, I liked that, uh, at the time anyway, I, I cared more about lyrics than I do now. But um, 
uh, I, I really love Jeremy Enoch's lyrics, especially. I would kind of pour over them uh, kind of obsessively. And, um, yeah, I guess that's the thing that, that really kind of connected with it. was, And, and also, because I was uh, in the midst of being like a, a full-on hardcore kid, um, I like that it could be, at least stuff like Sunny Day could be really loud and, you know, noisy. Um, whereas, which is why it took me a little while to get into the promise ring because they were so poppy um, because I just wanted it to be loud. Uh, but I think that's why, I think that's why I was attracted to emo in the first place. I, I kind of like, I did like the sadness of it. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, you know, I'd love to kind of get into the, um, I want to talk about the revival a little bit after, but sort of, you know, was writing something that you had always, you know, done or, or wanted to do? And how did you get to the spot where you are now at N- NPR? Uh, I started writing when I was 15. Um, I, uh, I co-founded a, a web theme with somebody I met on the Internet from Chicago. And we mostly wrote about like pop punk um, and hardcore and stuff like that. And, you know, uh, I don't want to name it because uh, I'm really embarrassed by everything that was written. But, um, <laughs> That's okay. But, you know, total total fanzine style kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, with 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 terrible interviews and stuff like that. Um, and I I would continue to write through college. Um, uh, I did college radio, as I mentioned. I was extremely involved in the Athens music scene, which really opened up um, my taste in music. Um, and that was really the time that uh, I, at least pertinent to the subject we're talking about, that was the time that I, I drifted away from emo and hardcore and pop punk and was exposed to uh, more exper- experimental music. I listened to a lot of free jazz, I listened to metal and uh, was really into noise and participated in a lot of noise-related projects and scenes. And uh, also really got into psychedelic music because Athens, Georgia, you know, home to Elephant Six with all the, you know, uh, Olivia Tremor control and circulatory system and all that stuff. So that kind of, like, took me took me a different direction, not only because I wasn't really listening to emo and pop-up anymore, it's just, the stuff that was going on at the time uh, doesn't really interest me um, as uh, I think what I'm intimating from you uh, with, you know, fallout boy and whatnot. Um, although in hindsight, I, I appreciate what fallout boy did, even though I still don't particularly like them. Um, uh, but let's see. Is that's, I mean, that's the, it's, it's, we would have definitely hung out. Um, I was at the college yeah. paper. I was at the radio station, and I would have been at all the shows. So we we would have hung out. Um, I lo- it's and I think too that's interesting. Sort of the you know you moved away, um, but then you know I guess from writing at the paper was it was it uh, you know was it something that you wrote for a smaller thing and then you uh, you know moved up to DC? How did you kind of get to the you know the spot at the um, NPR? Well, uh, I did call, I was, like I said, very involved in the radio station. I was the music director there, uh, hosted lots of different kinds of shows. 
And I was doing more higher profile writing uh, with uh, tiny mixtapes. And um, there was a short, there was kind of an on again, off again uh, zine called Band Software. Um, that was a really great um, music magazine that just kind of never found its audience, um, which was unfortunate. But I wrote uh, probably one of my favorite pieces of writing from that time uh, for Band Software. Um, and, uh, you know, as I, was, as I was getting ready to graduate from college, uh, originally I was going to be an English teacher. And in my last year of school, I decided I wanted to get into the music industry, which, you know, terrifies every parent. Um, uh, I specifically wanted to get into ethnomusicology. I was very interested in uh, American blues music, and I wanted to, wanted to study that more thoroughly. And so I, I, you know, I was kind of, you know, famously wandering, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I um, was fussing around the internet. And then I came across a program on NPR called All Songs Considered. And so I listened to a couple episodes and I was like, oh, this is kind of like what I was doing at the radio station because I had a program that um, with a friend that basically was giving music news and kind of like talking about the record more extensively than just like telling you what song you listen to and, uh, you know, did some analysis as the song was happening. So I applied for an internship and, uh, and I got it. And um, the summer that uh, I was, the summer that I came to NPR, which was 2006, um, they, uh, NPR announced that they were going to be expanding their music coverage online. And I was encouraged by uh, my boss at the time, uh, Bob Boylan, who hosts All Songs Considered, to stay in D.C. to see what happened, basically. And uh, so I went down to Georgia, packed up my station wagon, and drove back um, and was you know, unemployed for a couple months. And then right before I was going to get a restaurant cake, I got a phone call asking if I want to start pimping. And I kind of went, kind of went from there. It, my job has changed a lot uh, in the eight years that I've been at NPR. Um, but um, it's been a really great gig. And, you know, I don't really do as much writing as I would, as I would love to do. And my job is more back end, like producer work. Um, but uh, every now and again, uh, they'll let me write about some crazy metal band or weird, like, experimental group, or in, in some cases, emo. Um, I mean, I love that story, and I think it's – I get people emailing me from my college and asking, how do you do it? And I just want to play them back what you just said. Like, that's how you do it. You have – that internship you make an impression and you hold on and you know you're like i think something's going to happen i think this is going to be good and funny thing when you do that it happens um and you know i love i've always loved an npr and my parents always listened to it and it was that i always kind of noticed like wow it's not the 30 second story it's five minutes about something it's 10 minutes about something and you actually retained it um, or learned more in depth things about that. And, um, that must, you know, be a, a 
a great feeling to kind of know that you have that kind of audience that's okay with you explaining five minutes about something and doesn't need, you know, a BuzzFeed list. Right. And the, the thing, uh, that's why I was, I mean, I don't think I really started listening to NPR until um, my last year of college. And I, I, um, I was like, oh, what's this thing? Because, you know, I was always listening to the college station, you know. But, um, and uh, the thing that I appreciate about that NPR's implicit mission that isn't, uh, I don't think, so much um, put out in the world is that it's, it's educational without telling you. It's you know it's it's if, if it's a it's a if it's a subject of it's a it's a subject of interest uh, to the reporter. But it's the reporter's job to express that same interest to the audience, and hopefully the audience reciprocates. And so uh, that was, and that especially was uh, I was kind of taken by that challenge when um, when NPR was kind of hinting at, oh, maybe we'll let Lars write about his weird stuff sometimes. And so I was like, okay, well, how do I, how do I tell people about comments on, comments on fire without freaking them out? Um, <laughs> and that's essentially what I would try to do. I would you know, basically try to ex- try to explain to them in terms that Maybe they understand, but not do it in a way that was dumbing it down for people who already were in the know. And that is that is the most difficult balance to pull off. <laughs> and it's taken me years to uh, find places where that makes sense. Um, it, it is not easy work. Yeah. And then, too, I mean, when you were pitching the, if it was the Braid or the Jazz June stuff, what... You know, would you are you kind of like very picky on all right? I'm going to go for this, or I think, or you're going to kind of know when they you think they're going to go for something based on what's happening or the moment. I mean, I the thing is is that I'm pretty much the only one on that beat, <laughs> and uh, well, I I have a coworker at. Uh, uh, at NPR Music named Tyler Amin and he he kind of comes from that world a little bit too he's also a musician and he knows that stuff um, but especially when it comes to like metal and kind of more experimental music um, I'm pretty much the only one in the office that has that history and knows what's important so it's my job to convey why it's important uh, not only to, so I have to convey it to them. I have to convey it to my staff first, and then find a way to convey it to the NPR audience. So the stuff with, uh, I mean, the, the the thing about like when I when I wrote the new item about mineral and when I premiered the new songs by the Jazz June and Brave, you know, there are people on our staff who remembered that time. Uh, my coworker Stephen Thompson, he has been uh, an editor and a writer for 25 something years. He helped found the Onion AV Club, so he is very familiar with that particular period of emo. And when I said, "Oh, uh, there's a new jazz tune song," and he's like, "What? Why?" <laughs> and 
so it's it's a you know do you feel that some of these people are do you feel like the, they're getting coverage because you and I are in positions where we can write about it and our bosses vaguely remember it and so they're okaying it? <laughs> do you feel like I that's mean, partly why? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I remember when all of the, the emo revival like trend pieces started coming out uh last year and you know the thing is, it's like everybody tries to dissect it every which way, but the fact of the matter is, at least part of it, this isn't the whole of it, and I think that's the, 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 it, that's the problem that most of the people who wrote those articles got wrong. I think a large part of it is that people who are my age, I'm 31, I just turned 31, and I am, you know, I've worked my way up through, you know, through the journalism ladder, so to speak. And there are a lot of similar people who have worked with themselves into other media, not just journalism, but in TV and, and, and what else and whatever else. And, you know, they grew up on this stuff and, you know, they have not only the means to expose their music to a younger audience for better or for worse, you can, you know, you, there can be a cynical side of, of that as well. But um, they also have the means to produce it. They have the means to um, uh, put records out by younger artists who are making this music now. And I, I feel like this is, uh, I, I remember, I remember I went, went on a rant about this on Twitter and I made the similar point, and uh, who I, I forget, I don't know who runs the, the top shelf account, um, but he kept favoriting everything that was writing about that exact same point, because he obviously is probably in the similar position, where now he's, you know, built up, uh, he's built up his wealth, but also his reputation uh, with this label, and he believes in this music. And he sees a lot of younger artists doing some really exciting things with it. And he wants to bring it out to the world. And it's caught on in this really uh, cool and interesting way. And I also think, too, the bands got better. I mean, there were people telling me in 2010 that there's these bands being emo. And at the time, it was really shitty versions of braid american football like all the sort of midwest stuff and nothing really kind of clicked there were a couple things that kind of percolated but nothing i think it did take time and it really was this storm of people in the right place at the right time to write it to put out the records just like you said but then also the bands got better um and the recording and the money and it's I, i mean i'm happy about it. it's not like i'm dissecting it to be like well, I'm bummed. I'm like, this is amazing that, I mean, I wanted to get your take too, that it's sort of these bands were referencing artists that I thought they were going to reference the mid-2000s first, but they kind of jumped over it. And that said to me that this music really did have an impact um, on them because they weren't, you know, they're just kids kind of finding and searching quicker than we ever could. But we are we were also being older able to help them <laughs> because they sounded like the older bands is that i don't know if i'm hopefully making sense but it was an interesting sort of 
time. <laughs> I mean, I remember it, it, it was the exact same year, 2010. I was asked to speak on a panel at MacRock, actually, um, that you had mentioned earlier, the festival in Harrisonburg. And um, so as, as part of my quote-unquote payment for being on the panel, I got to go to the festival for free. And uh, so there, uh, I had never been before, and I was just kind of, I just decided, and the, the roster was a bunch of bands that I hadn't heard of except for the stuff that was at the metal hardcore stage. And so I just decided I'm just going to go see whatever. And if I like it, I like it. If I don't, then I'll go somewhere else. And I remember um, one day I I, stumped, I I walked into a camera. Uh, it's called the, the Artful Dodger. Um, Great venue. Right yeah, it's a nice place. And uh, I walk in and uh, I, I to this day, I still can't remember the name of the band. Um, something to do with it wasn't. It started with it had a pipe in the name. It wasn't like pipette, but it was something like that. And I kept thinking, this sounds like Raina Maria. And like, <laughs> what? What's going on? And then that very next band, and I remember this band um, uh, that came on was Algernon. Uh, Codwaller, I can never say their name. Codwaller, um, whatever it is, yeah, yeah. All yeah. on Codwaller, yeah. And I was like, this sounds like Captain Jazz. It's like, who's <laughs> who's playing like Captain Jazz in 2010? And I was just, I was kind of baffled and uh, kind of excited about it at the same time. I was like, at, at, at the time, they were extremely derivative, and you know, it wasn't enough to really hold my attention. Uh, I think they got better later on. Um, but, uh, I was just kind of, I, I had no idea that people were still making this kind of music and I was very much delighted by it because as you said, those years of, uh, guy liner and whatever, you know, I think they served their purpose, um, for a certain generation, but, um, uh, you know, I was just so curious. It's like, how, how did you, you know, obviously the internet probably played a large part in like what they were like listening to because you know that's the age that we're living in but i was i was really excited about it so i started doing some research when i got home and i was like oh there's this band called snowing oh there's a band right here in dc called the monument and they're really good but yeah but see how it was the first bands were sort of derivative but then you could sort of see it and i was fascinated that they all were obsessed with captain jazz because i i mean I, maybe I, I like hooks. I yeah, I didn't think they were the ones to emulate. <laughs> like I was into hooks. Like I love. I understand Captain Jazz, you know, place. I understand all these rites of spring where they were, where they are and why. I was just, I was like, really? You're co- you're copying or not copying almost those bands. Like what? What about them? Like did they get the Jade Tree sampler? Like when I didn't know. Like it just, it was baffling, but. I mean, now that there's so many different bands and, and offshoots of it, and, you know, the name, obviously, Emo Revival, there's sort of a, you know, dirty word to it, or dirty sense to it. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm still happy about it, because people are talking, because they're talking about, maybe they're talking about, uh, you know, if whatever band is in, into it over it, and then in the next, next breath, they're talking about Mineral, and that only helps my hero, you know? <laughs> right. So I'm fine with it. <laughs> um, 
Um, what what are your thoughts on um, you know what's you know next? And it doesn't even have to be you know emo. And obviously, you're so connected in with you know music and and things that are happening. Are there are there things that you're excited about now, or things that are coming that you're thinking about? You know. I don't really know what I, I there I don't really know what's next, you know, in emo because I, I still I think I still have this very defined idea of what it is in my mind just because it was such a, an important part of my high school years and you know, I, I think a large uh, I think the thing that I like most about, you know, this younger crop of you know, musicians is that they're challenging um my idea of uh, where it could go, and I like that a lot. That, I'm, that's that's always something that I'm looking for in music. I'm always looking for a challenge, and uh, I'm I have the things that you know I'm nostalgic for and that I reach for. But at the uh, but when when I want something new, I want it to sound new, and you know I'm enjoying what I'm hearing, at least with the experiments that I'm hearing. I, I don't always like. I, I still I'm still not into that band boxing, but I like I like that they're thinking about where to go next. I I, I enjoyed I the same thing with uh, that band with the impossibly long name. Um, yes. Uh, I can't remember their name. The world is a beautiful place, and I'm no longer alone, or something. Whatever it is, yeah, yeah. Empire, right. Empire, I, Empire, Empire. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I like that it's like I don't think they're there yet. But I like that they're thinking about where it should go, and um, I would I would love it if if um, because recently I was listening back to um, Apple Seed Cat low level owl albums. Why well, I, I love that fucking record, and uh, I I was just kind of astonished of uh, of how progressive that was uh, for a band that was very much kind of a mineral ripoff um, to just do almost an about space and be like, okay, this is what we're doing now. We're, we're going to, we're going to flip the script. We're going to throw in some more electronic stuff. We're going to take a little bit from post-rock here and blah, blah, blah here. And we're going to be, we're going to have, we're just going to pack it with a ton of melody and atmosphere. And, that's kind of what I want to see happen next. I don't want them to. I don't want to see them recreate Low Level Owl, but I want them to be thinking about not just add, not just adding for the sake of adding. I want them to think about how this music can be in conversation with what else is going on in the world right now. And it's not like I'm looking for an emo dubstep album. Please let there not be an emo dubstep album. But um, I think of a group called. Um, and I, I really wish that I would do more stuff, but there's a, there's this group that one man artist who's uh, called a, I am a lake of burning orchid, which is a stupid name, um, but he uh, he put out this album like a year or two ago that just completely like fooled with my with my notions of what um, electronic music could be because it mixed in elements of electronics. Of, of, of like kind of like uh, like ambient electronic music with uh, noise with screamo and it was all kind of in one place and I was and it like screwed with my notions of like 
where young kid, where like especially younger musicians are taking their influence from, um, because that's kind of the thing that has always impressed me about, especially the younger generation of, of artists right now. It's like they're just willing to do whatever, and sometimes, most of the time, it's a complete failure. Um, I mean, this is this is why we have deathcore. Um, which I don't know if you know what that is, but it's essentially this American uh, youth-centered uh, version of death metal that takes its more of its influence from uh, death metal. But it's uh, it got boring very quickly, and it could have been interesting, but it wasn't. And but I liked that they wanted to create something new, and that's kind of what I'm looking for for the next generation of emo artists. Like, I really like the emo pop funky stuff, you know, the shadow Monk stuff. That's fun. But after a while, I get bored with it. Um, I want them to push even further. 